This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Oman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, Bard MBA's Carolyn Pincus speaks with Ken Grossman, founder of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. This conversation was recorded in fall 2018. Ken, this is Carolyn. Uh, thank you so much for joining us at the Impact Report today. Um, we're so happy you're here. And we're just going to get started with um, a little bit of uh, background about Sierra Nevada Brewing Company and your start in brewing and who mentored you and and what you would say the most important lessons you learned early on in uh, beer brewing before uh, pre-Sierra Nevada. Certainly. Um, A little bit of my background. So I started out uh, in Southern California as a a hobbyist back in uh, sort of the early days of uh, at least modern home brewing um, around 1969. And I was uh, I guess inspired and mentored to some degree by a neighbor who was a very accomplished home winemaker, home brewer, sake maker, had a small home still, um, was a avid outdoorsman and a rocket scientist. And, and um, he um, huh. was my my buddy from elementary school's father, lived uh, four doors down. And when I was growing up, I was around uh, his house regularly when he was boiling word on the stove or fermenting wine or doing something around fermentation. And so I was, uh, I guess, raised with the, the sights and smells of, of brewing and fermentation from quite a young age. And I went out and purchased uh, uh, equipment to make beer uh, myself. And, and back in that era, there were a few homebrew shops around, um, but most of the home brewing that was being done was really prohibition style. Um, you know, not very sophisticated, uh, a cheap source of, of alcohol and, and not a very sophisticated approach mm-hmm. to brewing science. And I moved to Chico to, uh, to go to uh, study chemistry, I attended uh, Butte College, the junior college here, and then later Chico State. And I came up with some of my home brewing equipment and, and continued to make uh, batches of beer. Uh, that was 1972. And then I decided in 1976 to open a homebrew supply store. And so opened uh, the homebrew shop in downtown Chico, uh, which was a, a very small little business. And, and we sold uh, malt and hops and grapes and uh, things for hobbyists, um, uh, brewers and winemakers. And then a couple of years after that, I, I actually went on a a trip down to the Bay Area um, for a, uh, a winemaking and homebrewing conference, I think 1978, and met Fritz Maytag from the Anchor Steam Brewery, and then made a couple of trips down to New Albion, which was the, the first American really upstart craft brewery since Prohibition, um, and went and visited him in Sonoma a couple of times in, in the late 70s and decided I wanted to pursue, pursue brewing as a career. So I put my homebrew shop up for sale in 78 and started to work on a business plan and uh, assemble brewing equipment uh, to make uh, 10 barrel batches of beer. And back in that era, there was really no 
um, equipment you could just sort of buy off the shelf. And so everything was fabricated or reconfigured from soda uh, operations, uh, uh, dairy farms, um, dairy tanks as fermenters, uh, and other food processing equipment. So I cobbled together this little 10-barrel brewery, and by um, 1980, we made our first commercial batch of beer. Oh, a 10-barrel system. Okay, cool. Um, and I'm just curious, uh, uh, at the homebrew shop, where were you purchasing hops and malts at that time? Was that Did we have a domestic market at that time for those crops? The, the hop... Um, Industry in the U.S. at that point in time was pretty concentrated in Washington. There were um, uh, a bit of acres in Oregon and a little bit in Idaho at that time, and then there was a, a little bit of a European import market. Uh, I connected with some hop dealers in Europe. Um, I actually went to Yakima uh, in 1976 when I was starting the homebrew shop. I actually had family that lived right outside of Yakima. So I made a pilgrimage up there in my uh, Toyota station wagon, and I loaded it full of 100-pound, one-pound, 101-pound hop uh, lots. And and back Mm. then, um, brewers would receive what are called brewer's cuts. So it was a one-pound, roughly, uh, chunk out of a 200-pound bale. And that's what the brewer would reject or, or decide to purchase based on. So that was the you know sample of that 200 pound bale. I ended up buying a hundred a hundred of those one pound blocks, which normally weren't sold, but um they sold them to me since I was such a small homebrew shop customer. Uh, wow. but hops in, in the US back in in the late seventies were uh pretty much just a few varieties. Cluster was the majority of, of the whole US crop industry. Um and there were a few other um, alpha varieties, bullions and Brewer's Gold and Northern Brewer, and there were um, a couple of aroma varieties that were um, Willamette, um, hmm. which was a, a, a British cloned variety of a fuggle. Um, mm-hmm. But there weren't a lot of choices back in that era. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, and that actually, so in your so your first style is the pale ale right the that's the flagship is that what you were creating um in 70 78 or 80 yeah so actually as homebrewers we were fairly advanced so we were culturing our own yeast and we were brewing uh, a range of style styles back then um but when we decided to, to open a commercial brewery um we started working on just a few brands, and we, we decided we would be uh, top fermenting and bottle conditioning and sort of the, the hallmarks of our pale ale uh, today. But we realized we didn't have a lot of sophistication in our in our home-built equipment, and so um, we focused on an ale, a porter, and a stout, and we, we got that sort of um, direction from some of the turn-of-the-century brewers in America. Uh, we had some old, old brewing books, and you'd look at uh, an advertisement for some brewery in upstate New York, and, and on the side of the building, it would say, ales, porters, and stouts. And uh, so we sort of took mm. that uh, that heritage approach to brewing, and, and those were sort of the, the styles we came out with initially. Cool. Um, and 
and I just have to ask it. What what were the uh, you don't have to go into details, but the difference between your porter and your stout at that time? Um, just any is there any kind of because I'm just curious. Now I believe you still sell the porter, right? No, we still sell the stout as well. So yeah, we oh, still produce do? those. Yeah, those two original beers. They aren't widely distributed, but yeah. um, they are available in, in specialty liquor stores around the country. Um, so the the porter was sort of a halfway between a stout and a an ale, and uh, uh-huh. um, depending on who, whose uh, story you believe as far as the origin of porter, <laughs> um, uh, one of them was that the, the porters on trains would blend an ale and a stout to have a uh, sort of an in-between beer in, in uh, mm-hmm. London um, back in the turn of the century. So, uh, yeah, our stout was just, Going into the 1980s and 1990s, um, can you talk a little bit about the scaling process Sierra Nevada went through, um, sort of from an operational perspective? Sure. So that first year, we, we didn't uh, actually start brewing until the end of 1980. Uh, November 15th uh, was our first brew date. We actually brewed five barrels of stout as the very first batch of beer we did, and then uh, immediately started brewing pale ale. Um, so by uh, 81, we were um, sort of humming along at, at roughly a, you know, less than 1,000 barrel a year clip. Um, we were pretty constrained back in that day with equipment, and I only had two open fermenters and six uh, horizontal um, cellar tanks that I'd welded together myself, and that was it uh, our first year or so. And we um, sort of rapidly got up to that capacity, which was a maximum of about 12 brews a month. So our total production, uh, when maxed out uh, initially, was was basically um, you know, 1,200 um, or you know, 120 barrels a month. So um, not a lot, a little over 1,000 barrels a year. Um, so we, we rapidly realized we better do something because we were barely breaking even and not making enough money really to pay ourselves. So I actually worked a second job for uh, the first year or so. Um, mm-hmm. So we scaled up um, and added two more open fermenters and four more cellar tanks and, and got the capacity up to about 2,500 barrels the second year. And then continued to realize that you know, the, the brewing industry is very capital intensive and our business plan, although it looked okay on paper, wasn't working uh, as well as we envisioned as far as, as breaking even and making money. Um, so we started to figure out how to expand and increase the brew house to 17 barrels and put some um, 30 barrel fermenters in. And um, at, at that point we were starting to make a living and, and we were growing pretty rapidly. And I went over to Germany and purchased a, a defunct brewery over there that was 100 barrels. So that mm-hmm. was uh, the end of 83. Um, and brought it back to, to the U.S. with the, the hope of uh, borrowing some money to, to build a new brewery. And uh, as we had learned uh, our first go-around, the, the banks were not at all interested in loaning breweries money yep. in that era. Um, mm-hmm. If you were a banker of, of any sort, you would investigate the U.S. brewing industry and see that breweries were going out of business at a really rapid rate since prohibition had ended. Um, they okay. had been closing um, and almost zero breweries had, had reopened or opened uh, since prohibition up until um, around 1980, which was 
the low point in the U.S. brewing industry of about 45 uh, independent companies in the U.S. So not a real good investment from a standpoint of a, of a banker. So nobody would loan us any money. So we had uh, this brew house I, I bought in Germany and, and went over there with a buddy and dismantled it and shipped it back to California. And, and uh, we realized we couldn't raise any funds. We put it into storage and we figured out how to expand our little brewery even further on a few strings. So we took over another building next to ours that was our warehouse and we put some fermenters in outside and we started brewing around the clock and um, did what we could to max out the capacity. Um, so we got the original brewery, which I designed to sort of expand to 2,500 barrels. We actually produced mm -hmm. uh, close to 12,000 barrels there in 1987. Um, and at that point, we were, I guess, finally had enough of a track record. We were able to um, convince a, a bank to loan us some money and some uh, friends to loan us some money and family and a builder to build us a building um, and lease it to us. And so we um, started construction in 87 and opened up uh, where we are currently uh, on 20th Street in 88. Um, mm -hmm and um, installed the German equipment and um, we went to our next phase, which at that point we had uh, designed the capacity to grow to about 60,000 barrels. And mm. you know, if I looked back at that time, so we were at uh, roughly 12,000 barrels at that original brewery. I think Anchor mm -hmm. was maybe in the 30 to 40,000 barrel range and, and Fritz Maytag at that point was by far the most successful sort of um, revitalized craft brewery. Um, even though he purchased an existing brand, he really built that uh, that company from nothing to, to where it was at that point. So when I was sort of thinking, you know, how big could we get four times our, or over four times our, uh, our production capacity seemed like a huge stretch. And so I designed the brewery to expand up to 60,000 barrels. Yeah. And... Um, our first year in the new facility, we brewed 20,000 barrels. Our next year, 30,000 barrels. The uh, year after, 45,000 barrels. And the year after that, we were at 60,000 barrels. So within a, just a, a few years, we had reached the capacity that I had envisioned uh, as the ultimate capacity. And so we started to figure out how to continue to grow. And at, at that point in time, um, it, it was pretty difficult to sell craft beer. There wasn't really a a lot mm -hmm. of knowledge about what craft beer was, why it's different. Um, you know, um, the, the whole segment was pretty unknown. Uh, people understood maybe imported beers as being a little different, but a small American brewery producing hoppy styles of beers and some with you know, yeast in the bottle um, was a bit of a hard sell, both for the yeah. wholesalers, the retailers, and the consumers. So did a lot of beer festivals and, and uh, eventually convinced some bars and restaurants to carry our beer. I was going to ask how, who in those days, who distributed you and yeah, who did you just, you had your own sales team and you went door to door sort of with retailers, but how did, how did the beer actually get to the retailers? So in Chico, in our hometown, we had, um, one employee um, started out as a part-time employee who drove a van around. Uh -huh. And uh, uh -huh. California is one of the states that does allow self-distribution. So uh -huh. the uh, 
the, the after prohibition, every state got to determine their own beer and liquor yeah. laws as far as um, you know, how distribution works and whether it has to go through a, a middle tier or distributor or wholesaler or if the brewery has rights to distribute directly to the retailer. Uh, in California, we can go right to the retailer from the brewery. Um, many other states, that's not possible. Yeah. Um, so we started out that way. And then as we expanded into the Bay Area in San Francisco, we um, would assign a wholesaler. <clears throat> and in those early years, again, we were an unknown brand with no marketing. I had still only one salesperson. Um, and so we you know, had to take the distributors that were willing to take us. We didn't really have a choice. And in some markets, mm. there were no distributors willing to take us. In other markets, there might be one that was a, a second or third tier distributor who d didn't have a major brand. So instead of um, filling a truck with um, Miller or Coors or Budweiser or some other main brand, they would have a bunch of small brands. And those distributors tended not to have a lot of clout in the marketplace and they yeah. wouldn't go to every store or um, restaurant. They would only you know, go to a few that were you know, wanting to carry a, a more esoteric line of beers. So we, we didn't always have the best distribution in those early years. Incredible. So, yeah, with just essentially the entire landscape transformed from when you um, came into the industry, what would you say currently is um, the most exciting technology or innovation, um, you know, globally or domestically in the brewing industry right now? Well, I, I, you know, I, I will say that the the marketplace is very, very diverse and dynamic today, much more so than when I started. The consumers are much more aware of beer, beer styles, how beer is made, ingredients, um, and are much more receptive to styles that would have been very off-putting for the majority of beer drinkers back when we started. Um, in 1980, when we came out with our beers, um, they were considered, uh, you know, very hoppy, bitter, aromatic, mm -hmm. um, so strange compared to somebody who's used to drinking an American light lager um, that we would have uh, you know, sort of love-hate relations with our consumers. Uh, mm -hmm. We had some that would lo love what we were doing and others you know, could not drink any of our beers. Um, today, the consumers palate has been uh, widely expanded and um, now is sort of pushing the brewers to you know, produce hoppier and um, you know, higher alcohol and um, you know, aromatic and super cloudy and um, sour and, and all these trends that we're, we're seeing across the um, universe of brewing um, are now being widely embraced and, and um, expanded on by the, the brewers. So I, I think, uh, you know, if you were a beer drinker, you're living in a world today that uh, was unknown to beer drinkers just a few years ago as far as the range and diversity. So I'd say the just the amount yeah. of, of uh, variety that's available to the consumer is, is just um, un unimaginable. And it's one thing that, uh, you know, the U.S. has gone from uh, sort of the laughing stock uh, as far as uh, mm. the global industry back in 1980. Um, you know, if you were a European brewer, uh, European consumer who came to the, the U.S. to visit, and you were from a country like uh, the U.K. or Belgium or Germany, 
that had these great brewing traditions with uh, amazing diversity and uh, interesting beers, and you came to America back in 1980, um, all the beer tasted the same, and it had very low character. Mm -hmm. Um, Today, the U.S. brewing industry is more diverse and and has more uh, beers with character than all those countries. Um, Germany sort of went the path of the U.S. a little bit and ended up with um, basically, you know, one or two styles of beer and uh, a lot of um, homogeneity amongst brewers, um, something that happened in the U.S. back in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, yeah. That happened in, in Germany and in the U.K., the, the beers are fairly, you know, low in alcohol and low in flavor mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. nearly as yeah. interesting as they probably were at, at one point, so... I think that the U.S. is now leading the charge for creating um, and interpreting um, beer styles in a way that's more diverse, more interesting than just about anywhere else in the world. The the craft brand has taken hold, though, globally. So there are now craft brewers in pretty much every country in the world producing American-style IPAs and um, Mm -hmm. other beers that we, we sort of pioneered in the U.S., so we're just going to switch uh, gears a little bit because I could talk about like style trends all day with you. So um, I, uh, yeah, wanted to move into sustainability uh, topics. Um, I guess just moving into any, you know, um, the sustainability programs um, that you're most uh, excited about at Sierra. I know you have just a ton of um things going on there and then um yeah just any either the energy solutions that i know you guys pioneered and um anything you have currently going on that excites you in the sustainability realm i'll sort of go through some of the stuff we've done over the years mm-hmm. um in the chico facility we started putting in energy generation equipment oh about 15 years ago at least uh, we put in a a megawatt of fuel cell um, power. Um, we, we put in two, two or four 250 kilowatt um, fuel cell energy fuel cell. We're one of the biggest and earliest um, private installations in the U.S. And so we ran that equipment for roughly 10 years. Uh, basically, it's it's useful life. Um, we were an early adopter, and that technology um, you know was fairly sophisticated and and did have a life expectancy. Um, we've since uh, changed that out to uh, 10 micro turbines, um, uh, two megawatts worth, with uh, a bank of Tesla batteries. And so we've got a uh, sort of our own mm-hmm. on-site um, storage and distribution um, network, uh, and that's coupled with more than 10,000 solar panels, which we put in uh, starting back about uh, more than 10 years ago as well. Uh, so the Chico facility is almost 100% now um, able to produce all its own electricity. Um, the cogen units are, oh, excuse me, the, the um, yeah, the cogen units also produce a lot of heat, and so we have uh, uh, steam production capacity off of the waste heat from the turbines, which feeds back into our process and heats water and boils beer. Um, so a fairly uh, efficient overall uh, energy footprint on the the power production. And then we've done things around uh, water conservation for years. Um, mm. Got our own organic um, 
gardens for our restaurants at both breweries, and then we've got um, organic hops and barley fields here in Chico that we produce a small percentage of our own barley um, and get malted as well as hops um, and do some estate beers with that. And then the other thing we put in quite a few years ago, I think I want to say probably 10 years ago as well, is a a big uh, composting system from New Zealand called a hot rod, which um, is a drum type composter. It'll take a ton of uh, waste material a day. And so all of our restaurant scraps, um, paper towels and things like that, uh, wood chips go into the uh, composter every day, some some amount of spent hops. And that turns out a um, really great um, compost, um, which we then use on our hops and barley and, and our food crops. Wow. Um, we, I'll touch oh, yeah. this briefly, we did in North Carolina. So North Carolina, we yeah. built that facility. We started in 2012. And it was uh, uh, the first, uh, I think the only maybe uh, lead platinum uh, production brewery in the U.S. Um, and we incorporated uh, a lot of water conservation, water storage, stormwater storage, and toilets are flushed with uh, recycled stormwater, irrigation mm. solvers with stormwater. Um, we've got um, uh, actually both breweries, anaerobic uh, digesters uh, that um, treat our wastewater and generate methane uh, that we capture and, and use uh, in gas turbines out in North Carolina. And that methane is used in our boilers in Chico, uh, so that provides a percentage of our, our gas energy. Um, and that uh, brewery in North Carolina also has a, a lot of uh, uh, energy saving as well as um, sort of uh, building monitoring systems to um, provide comfort as well as efficiency in, in that design. What would you say in terms of, so you've been working in this, it sounds like 15 years was when you did that initial uh, fuel, fuel cell install. Um, how would you say that sustainability in brewing um, in terms of accessibility and, you know, just, I don't know, being able to hire people properly trained for that. How would you say that's changed in the past 10, 15 years or has it changed? Well, I mean, going back even before we put in some of the big systems, we were doing um, a lot of smaller initiatives, um, energy saving motors and lighting, and we've done a lot of retrofit. Uh, refrigeration systems we've we've put in um very state-of-the-art uh we have uh, centrifugal compressors that are um, um mag mag lev um so magnetic levitated uh, rotors on them there's no bearings or oil uh in the compressors they're they're actually designed for nuclear submarines and have been uh, commercialized so we have those compressors in both breweries that are super efficient so we've been doing uh, a lot of things over the years. Um, um, in, in initially, it was really out of necessity. We really didn't have any money, so we had to be real efficient in using our resources and you know, saving energy and water just as um, funds were limited. As we were able to grow, we you know, looked at how we could do those things better, and so we've um, you know, been able to invest in technologies that were probably out of reach um, early on. Um, and we've got um, engineers and, and uh, mm -hmm. ability folks at both breweries that um, you know, look for those opportunities to um, mm -hmm. conserve resources. 
then I just wanted to touch on because the the fires, um, the news about the fires in California were obvious, were you know, devastating to follow from out here, and I uh, just wanted to ask, you know, how the brewery has been, how the community has been, and um, you know, ask a little bit about the. I know I saw something that Sierra was creating um, a beer to raise funds, and if you just wanted to talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, yeah, the fires have been hugely impactful to our our community and our workforce. We've had uh, um, over 60 people impacted, of our employees impacted from the fires, and, oh, wow. and probably close to 50 have lost their homes. So it's uh, a, a huge um, impact to to us as a company. Our community has had um, uh, 14,000 people lose their homes in the adjoining community of Paradise and, and uh, the surrounding area. Yeah. So it's been uh, very traumatic. Um, a lot of lives were lost as well. Um, so we've done what we can. So we uh, we opened our restaurant for all the impacted people for free meals, and we opened our gift store for free clothing to people who didn't have any clothing. Um, that was sort of our first response. And then we um, started a, a fund, uh, a 501c3 um, uh, housed fund um, to try to, get some financial resources to to help the community and as part of that fundraising effort we um, decided to sort of launch a, a national plea for other brewers in the in the US or actually it's gone global now um, to brew a batch of beer and, and um, give the proceeds to um, this community fund so we could um, help in the rebuilding effort and it's been met with um, pretty amazing uh, response. We've got, I think, over 900 brewers now signed up to uh, contribute wow. all the all the proceeds from um, a batch of beer. Um, and we're doing uh, a, a big effort ourselves. So we'll be uh, canning and distributing as well as draft um, the, okay. the beer called Resilience. And uh, yeah. the brewing community is really... Um,
you know, we've got teams at both breweries uh, constantly um, working on and developing new beers, new styles of beers. So uh, we'll be announcing several new ones here uh, right on the first of the year that we're going to market with. So stuff we're pretty excited about. Uh, I guess uh, one question would be, you know, just since there has been a brewery explosion since you founded your company, uh, what advice, if any, would you give to someone looking to get into this space or start their own? Hmm. Well, um, the, the marketplace is um, is incredibly competitive. Um, you know, if you're a brewer that wants to try to brew and distribute packaged beer and you, you want to be you know, a, a national brand, um, it's really, really challenging and takes lots of resources and money. And not to say that you can't become a national brand um, from starting today, but it, it would be pretty tough. Um, the marketplace is very crowded. The shelf space is getting more and more um, limited with uh, so many brands. Uh, if you want to have a pub operation and you've got a community that you think you could build a brewery in and it would support you, that's probably the, the safest bet today. Um, but the brewing business is like you know, many businesses, it's quite competitive and challenging. It's not an easy um, business. Um, people you know, view it from the outside as, as uh, you know, very romantic to be a brewer, but it, it's really a lot of uh, cleaning and, and uh quality control and focus and attention to detail and um, it, it's not uh, quite as simple or straightforward as a lot of people who are on the outside looking and think. Um, so it's uh, it, it's a fun and great industry to be involved with, but um, you, you do need to, I think, be um, focused and diligent and hardworking in order to make a go of it. And if you open a, a brew pub that's a restaurant, uh, you've also got a, a restaurant food operation to uh, manage. And uh, I think most people probably realize that that's also a really tough business. So uh, if you're a great restaurateur and you're a, um, a, a, a detail-focused person and you've got a passion about beer and brewing, you can certainly you know, make a great business and have a, a good livelihood. But um, there's plenty of pitfalls to watch out for. So if I were to recommend anything, I'd say do your homework, study, become a very knowledgeable and competent um, brewer uh, ahead of trying to go commercial. Um, spend enough time that you, you really have, uh, uh, you know, understood the, the pitfalls and challenges of, of brewing beer consistently. Not that uh, most people with a little bit of luck can make a great batch of beer, but with uh, you know, day in and day out and, and all the challenges that Mother um, Nature brings to you as far as the raw materials changing, uh, to do it consistently day in and day out is, is, is quite a challenge. Yeah. Well, that's sage advice. <laughs> Thank you for that. Appreciate the opportunity to talk with you guys today. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. Learn more about Sierra Nevada and their Resilience IPA by visiting sierranevada.com. Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report on Friday, March 1st, when we will be speaking with Anirban Ghosh, Chief Sustainability Officer at the Mahindra Group.
For our complete lineup and other news, visit us at impactreportpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Bard MBA in Sustainability is one of a select few graduate programs globally that fully integrates sustainability into a core business curriculum. Learn more at bard.edu/mba.